took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashad. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So we see right away from last week as well, if you're familiar with what happened, the Philistines now have the ark of God. Um, we're going to see what is going on in this passage, basically. The ark of God is actually in a foreign land. This is not Israel, just in case you don't know that. But what I really want to do this morning is talk about the significance of the Ark of God and what this kind of meant in the biblical days. If you would go to Genesis chapter 6, because in order to understand this passage, especially the conclusion, in order to kind of build up on this powerful conclusion, we actually need to understand what was the Ark of God or what did the Ark of God represent. And the first mention made of any type of Ark in the Bible is actually Noah's Ark. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, 14, it says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fasten which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, and the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, and the lower, second, third stories shalt thou make it. Jump down to verse 17. It says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Now if you would, go to chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. So we see God tells Noah to make an ark, and then he tells him, I'm going to establish my covenant with thee, singular. Chapter 9, looking at verse 8, the Bible says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with them, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cow, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So basically, in a nutshell, God is going to destroy the world because, you know, man is violent. And God basically tells Noah to build an ark of Shittim with him. And then in that same passage, he tells him, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Fast forward to chapter 9, this is Noah gets off the ark, and the covenant is that God will not destroy the earth again with a flood. And a token of that covenant is the rainbow. And if you, if you read verses from verses, what, 12 to 17, he keeps saying token, token. He says, so I'll remember that I may remember it. This is the token of the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah. That's what the rainbow represented. And we see that Noah found grace in the eyes of God, and he and his family were spared from the wrath to come. In Hebrews chapter 9, the Bible talks about how Noah, when he built the ark, he also condemned the world, right? And this is, these common themes come up throughout the Bible when we look into the ark of the covenant. We're going to see some parallels with that. If you would, 
go to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read for you Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 to 33. This is talking about the manna, what I'm reading for you. It says, And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth, fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to keep for your generations. So in Exodus 16, God tells Moses, I want you to take a jar and put some manna in it and lay it up before the Lord, lay it up before the testimony that you may have it for your generation so the Israelites could remember what God did for them in the wilderness. Just like God made the rainbow so we would remember how God wouldn't destroy the world. We're not supposed to look at the rainbow and think of, you know, San Francisco. That's not what the rainbow's for. We're supposed to look at the rainbow and think of God's promise not to destroy the world again. And you're in Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 18. It says, and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God has come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off. And Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. So forth. This is where God is delivering the two tables of the stone. This is where, we, you know, the famous passage of the Ten Commandments. I'll read for you Exodus 31. It says, And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. I'm kind of breezing through this because I have a lot to cover and I'm already behind. But basically, we all know the story about how the, the mountain thumbered, thundered, it quaked, there was a great smoke. And if you touch the mountain, you're supposed to be you know, stabbed with a dart. God didn't want any animals, any people touching it. It was set apart. And when Moses comes down from the mount, he has two tables of stone. And those tables were something that also went into the Ark of the Covenant with the manna. And lastly, in Aaron's rod that budded, I'll read for you Numbers chapter 17. It says, And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded. And brought forth buds and blossomed and bloomed with blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel. And they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. So quick review. I'm going to kind of slow down here. I kind of caught up, thankfully. So we see the manna. The manna was something that God fed the children of Israel with in the wilderness. That went into the Ark of the Covenant. The tables, the two tables of stone that Moses came down from the mount, that went into the Ark of the Covenant. And lastly, Aaron's rod that budded. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah, this man, he was a Levite, he led a rebellion. He said, you take too much upon you, Moses, seeing all of the congregation are holy. And Moses was like, okay, let's see who God chooses. So they lay up their rods before the Lord, and Aaron's was the only rod that budded, signifying how God chose the Levites to be the priests. And that, too, went into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what do all three, like, what do all three of these things have in common? The manna, the tables, and Aaron's rod that budded. Well, there's a definition for each and every one of these things, and we obviously, we obviously use this a lot every time we mention the Bible. These are all testaments. They are covenants. They are tokens. They are signs that point to something spiritual. Jesus talked about the man, and he said, I am the bread which come down from heaven. You know? The Bible talks about the two tables of stone written with what? The finger of God. 
And of course, Aaron's rod that budded represents how God chose the Levitical priesthood from the seed of Aaron. These all were supposed to be things that the children of Israel can look at, and it would cause them to remember a certain covenant, right? And God's testament with mankind is the rainbow. We're supposed to look at the rainbow, mankind, not just the Jews, not just Christians, but mankind. He made this to Noah. We're supposed to look at the rainbow and say, hey, God's not going to destroy the world with a flood again. That's what that represents. And so remember, and we, we talked about this last week, how the children of Israel were losing the battle. And they said, you know what? This is why we're losing, because the ark of God is not with us. So they bring the ark of God in, and guess what happens? They still lose. Because the ark of God is not some trinket. It's not some superstition, good luck charm. The ark of God represents something. It represents God's covenant with Israel. That's what's called the ark of the covenant. That's what that definition comes from. And so go back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to start getting into the meat. I need you to all pay attention. We have a lot of verses I'm going to look at. It says in verse number 3, it says, And when they of Ashad arose early in the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in the place. And when they arose early in the morrow, on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off from before, the, from off the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread upon the threshold of Dagon and Ashad unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashad, and he destroyed them and smote them with emrods, even Ashad and the coasts thereof. And when the men of Ashad saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So, quick question. What happened to Korah and his company when they tried to rebel against the covenant? If you know the story, you know that the earth opened up herself and they all, it swallowed them up and they went straight down to the pit. And so, what happens when the entire world is outside of God's covenant? You know, if, they're not, if you're not in God's covenant of salvation, you know what happens? You go to hell. You know, if you're not going to be in the ark with Noah in his days, what happened? You would destroy the floods. So God's covenant is a testament of salvation unto us. To us, it's a, it's a covenant. It's a witness of our deliverance, of God's blessings upon us. But to the heathen, it's not. When the ark of the covenant comes to the camp of the Philistines, all of a sudden it starts killing them. It starts destroying them. Why is that? I know why. It's in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. You turn there. This is a really cool verse. I'll read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. It says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. So the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient? For these things. So God says we are unto him a sweet savor, not in just them that are saved, but also in them that perish. Not in just the people that go to heaven are a savor unto God, but also in the people who go to hell are a savor unto God. Like, what are you talking about? Now, if you're in Numbers chapter 10, look at verse 35. It says, And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord unto the many thousands of Israel. What is it talking about? If you remember in the Bible, every time the Israelites are about to go forward into battle, think of Moses. 
the parting of the Red Sea. You know, Moses, when he was born, his mother, what did his mother do to him? She put him in an ark of bulrushes. Moses was someone who was God used to preserve his covenant. They parted the Red Sea. When the Israelites were crossing the Jordan River, what happened? The Ark of the Covenant stood in the midst of the sea and the waters were parted until all the congregation had passed over. When Joshua and his people were going to conquer the land, what was going on? The Ark of the Covenant had to go before them to conquer the land and kill all their enemies. The Ark of the Covenant represented Israel's deliverance, but guess what? To the heathen, it was their destruction. When the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, the Philistines started trembling because they knew the history, right? If you would, if you're in 1 Samuel chapter 5, look at chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had wrought wonderfully among them, did they not let the people go and they departed? This is the Philistines speaking. They're talking about what the Egyptians did to the Israelites. They know what happened in Egypt. They know what happened in Exodus. And they're remembering that because it has significance. Let's keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning of verse 8. It says, They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of the God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a great, very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in the secret press. I have to pause. I just, this, this is kind of a funny thought. Remember when the Philistines in the first chapter, in the previous chapter, talking about, hey, let's quit you like men. Let's be strong because the God of, the, of, of Israel is coming to the camp in verse number, what is it? In verse number eight of chapter four. The Philistines said, woe unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians which, with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines. That you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. So the, the Philistines are trying to man up against God. And I like this because God basically takes their man card. Like he gives them emrods in their secret parts. Just like, man, talk about. I will never do that. But let's keep reading. That was just a joke. And it says, It was so also that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great. And they had emeralds in the secret parts. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us, to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it go again to its own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now, What's going on? What's happening in these couple of verses? So there's five cities in, in Philistia, and every city has a lord. You know, there's Ashad, there's Ekron, there's Gath, there's, there's two others I can't, I don't remember right now. But basically, they're taking the ark, God's destroying the men in this city, and they say, all right, let's get it, let's, we're going to move it to this city now. And then the same thing happens. People start dying. And they're like, all right, let's, let's move it to this city now. And the same thing happens. What is the lesson in that? We see God's covenant is not situational. It's not based on where you are. It's not based on, oh, it's true to you because you believe in it. Now, that's not what God said. God said, hey, it's true from the beginning. And no matter where they move it, the same thing keeps happening. You know, Jonah thought God's word was situational. That's why he ran. Peter thought God's word was situational. That's why when Jesus was resurrected, he called him fishing again. 
you served me, you followed me when I was alive, but then I, I, I die and I rise again and I catch you fishing again? See, oftentimes we think that we can run from God, that we can hide from God, but obviously we can't. God's word is true from the beginning. And the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding evil and the good. You can't run from God no matter what you do. But not only that, the Bible says in Acts 17, verses 29 and 31, I'll read it for you. It says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. It's not that, okay, the Philistines can have their God, the Canaanites can have their God, the Ekronites, the Ashadites, they can have their God. No, God says, I want all men everywhere to repent to serve me. And that gets into the conclusion of this chapter, because if you look at verse 12, it says, and when the men, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 5 again, it says, and when the men that died now were smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up, heaven. It says the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, what's interesting about this, because, you know, the Bible says the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. God talks about how God hears the prayers of the righteous, but the wicked, you know, his face is hid from them. Well, in conclusion of this, you know, if you study the word cry in the Bible, usually when the word cry is used, it's talking about innocent. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says, and the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground, right? And of course, the famous example of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says, and the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. Another example is in Deuteronomy 24, it says, thou shalt not oppress and hire servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates, at his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. So when we see people crying in the Bible, it's usually they're being afflicted, they're being, you know, they're innocent people, or they're being humbled. And believe it or not, God's destruction to this nation, to these cities in Philistia, was actually the best thing that happened to them. Because before, whereas these people were serving Dagon, these people are actually crying unto God now. And I just read this for you in the next chapter, in verse five of chapter six, where it says, wherefore ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land. And this is verse five, and it says, that ye may give glory unto the God of Israel. So they're actually saying, you know, we have a spiritual problem with this nation, God's judging us. They actually recognize that, hey, they need to invoke God to save them from this destruction. Now, do they do it in the right way? No, nowhere in the law does God tell them to make images of emeralds and images of mice. But the thought enters their mind, the change of heart enters into them, that they realize that, hey, we're not pleasing to God right now. We need to get rid of this ark where it needs to be. And moreover from that, we need to cry unto God. And lastly, I want you just to turn to Jonah chapter 3. I want to add the rest to a lot of this because if I, if, if I butchered anything or left anything out, it wouldn't have made sense. And I'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to be up here like, you don't know what I'm talking about, you know. Just show yourself approved, right? 
I actually didn't even think Aaron was going to print the sermon. I was like, I have to do this off of my phone. I should have been really, really awkward. It's actually so late. We did these sword drills, and now I can't find Jonah. This is a whale. Jonah chapter 3, and verse number 5. It says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Is that that word again. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So the Ninevites had this right idea. God was going to judge them. Jonah was going to, he went to preach. He told them, hey, the judgment of God is upon you. And they cried unto God, they turned their ways, they amended their ways, and they, they wanted to see peradventure of God will repent and turn from his way. Now, the Ninevites weren't being destroyed yet, but the Philistines were being destroyed yet. So we see that no matter what it takes, you know, you could either postpone this like Hezekiah did, the king Hezekiah. God told him, this is what's going to happen to you, but it was offset by 15 years because of his humility. And don't, don't be you know, deceived, the judgment of God will come. We can, like Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you're going to be judged by God, you're prideful, but maybe you could offset, you know, the judgment by giving alms, by praying, by, you know, doing good things, right? But the judgment still came to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you can't control that. If God gives a sentence against something, that sentence will follow through. There's nothing you can do about that. And why is that? Well, you see, there's love in judgment. The world wants to tell us that judgment is a bad thing. But the Philistines, yes, they lost a lot of men. Yes, they got Imrods in the secret parts. But at the end of it, they ended up crying, and their cry was heard in heaven. It came up to heaven. And that tells us that's the main part. That's the conclusion of that verse. It's like, you read about all this. You see about how God's judging their idol, Dagon. You know, he's falling upon his face. They're moving the ark of God from city to city. And every city our goes to, thousands of people are dying. The lords of the Philistines get together like, what are we going to do with this? Because they're not realizing that the Ark of the Covenant is their destruction. The Covenant was for Israel. It was for people who are... I didn't see more past there. It was for the people who are abiding in the Covenant. And God pronounced that, hey, if you're not going to be in Abraham's seed, if you're not going to be, you know, put in our terms in the New Testament, if you're not saved, if you're not walking in the light of the Lord, if you're not doing the right things, well, guess what? Bad things may happen to you. And so... Let this be a reminder unto us that, hey, God's judgment doesn't slumber, but it can also be the best thing to happen to you. It could humble you. Because the Bible says all the days that they afflict their evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Yes, what you're going through may be hard right now, but it can always be worse. And God was able to cause these people to glorify him by means of his judgment. And that's what God wants. God wants him to be exalted in every nation that there is. And our job as Christians is to make sure that that happens. 
So that's all I have for you. I'm sorry I had to rush through that. I really wanted to get through all this. Um, that's why I said I wore a prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, this chapter, Lord. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that pleases you, Lord. Help us to remember your covenant, Lord. I just pray that, Lord, that you'll be with the service this morning. Um, you'll be with Pastor, you're filled with the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to remember your covenant, Lord. Lord, you spared us from the wrath to come. Lord, we are in your covenant, Lord. We thank you for this passage. Thank you for the people that are here. Let's be with the soul winning this evening. Uh, be with us as we, we're going to try out um, a new church this morning. We're going to see how things are. Um, Help us, Lord, to always remember the people that are on our prayer list, Lord. Be with the coverts, Lord, Melissa. Um, Melissa's friend, Nina. That's a horrible thing that happened. Just want to pray for that. Thank you for this day. In Jesus' name.